Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. It is lovely to see you. As some of our listeners know, we do record these interviews over video and we release little sneak peeks of our videos. So it's always good to uh, see you online, Rena, as well as hear your lovely voice. Thank you so much, Amanda. (laughs) We are going to jump into our wins and challenges from our week in Strata. Why don't you kick us off, Rena, with your challenge for this week? Thanks, Amanda. So a very common challenge, I think, for many Strata schemes is completing their annual fire safety statement testing. And as managers know and building managers know, there's always that three-month testing period that needs to occur before the submission. There's other testing that may occur throughout the year. We've also spoken about this, Amanda, previously, I think, on other episodes where there are no clear guidelines, I think, for strata committees to understand why, especially just a week or two before the AFSS is due, that they've received these quotes for huge amounts of money to be expended for repairs of fire doors and other fire safety equipment. And I thought to myself, well, let me just check because one of the chairpersons said to me, Rena, I think there is an issue as to which standard they're testing. We're not a new building. We don't have to be tested to the new building standard. And I said, of course, that is correct. Let me just go to the council document, which obviously stipulates the date and the EPA and, and see what the schedule is and also what the standard of testing needs to be. And when I had a look at this particular council, which is not one of the city, inner city ones, it actually had nothing a matter. It was actually just just had the, all the equipment but had no standard to which it was to be tested. Mm. So I think this is a very important area, I think, for strata schemes because now, in a sense, all these issues that have come up that have to be fixed should have been probably picked up in previous years. And all of a sudden we are finding, Amanda, I think, that many companies, we say to them, well, you tested all these fire doors last year. One example is that, in this particular, another building that we manage, they're all asbestos fire doors. Now that's been asbestos from day one. <laughs> and the same company has been testing these doors every year. And now for the first time, they said they won't issue the annual fire safety statement because there's asbestos in the doors and they have to be replaced. Mm. As many of us know, these doors are around $1,500 each. And when you have to sort of spend that sort of money at the last minute, it is a bit disconcerting, I think. And I think it causes a lack of confidence in the fire safety industry. And I know, Amanda, you had a recent guest, Rob Broadhead, who actually spoke about this issue. But I'm not sure perhaps if our listeners can add any more to our discussion, but there is a a real problem out there in terms of every year contractors passing buildings. And then, you know, now currently I think there seems to be an appetite for less risk by these companies to Mm. allow these buildings to to go unrepaired or these items to remain. And... um, Yeah, not a very happy building, actually. 
Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Rena, where you say the appetite for risk has reduced in recent times. And that might be why we're seeing companies that previously said certain services or facilities were okay are now saying that they don't pass the test. And indeed, Rob Broadhead back in episode 178 from 2025 spoke exactly on that topic. And I asked him, do you see this happen where services have passed the test one year and they don't the next year? And he said all the time. And he said he understood completely why buildings were frustrated. And we have a real problem about being able to properly qualify competent fire safety professionals. And and just go back to that episode 178 if you want to learn more about what the fire safety industry is doing to address that. But something that you said there, Rita, at the beginning, you mentioned a three-month testing period. Can you tell me what that's about? Yeah, so normally what we've been advised, and again, Amanda, we don't understand the EPA or any of the legislation, but we've been advised that the testing must occur three months prior to the submission of the annual fire safety statement. Mm -hmm. So you can't sort of test doors, you know, six months before the due date. They've got to be tested within three months of the date of the submission of the annual fire safety statement. So, Mm, but again, I mean, I haven't seen the legislation. I think it's like many things in strata that you seem to learn things because of what people tell you, unless you understand strata legislation, that's what strata managers are supposed to know inside out. But anything else that's outside of that area of law, we are relying on contractors and, you know, these fire safety experts who are supposed to be competent to let us know what the BCA says, what BCA applies to the building, what the testing criteria and standards must be. And, you know, that simple three-month window that has to be fulfilled again it's something that I've been told but I haven't actually read it anywhere so I'm just assuming Mm. it's correct but it may not be yeah it's not something I've heard of but it does make sense that the testing should be done within the three months prior to the due date and not before where I see buildings get frustrated is where the testing is done some one week or a few days Mm. before the annual fire safety statement is due and then the building gets a quote from the contractor saying, oh, you need to do all of these things in order for us to issue your certificate. It's going to cost thousands of dollars. Oh, no, we're not going to be able to lodge the certificate on time. And you think, oh, well, why did we do the testing days before the due date? Well, Amanda, as you, we've already spoken about in previous episodes, this happens quite a lot where let's say there's a schedule of defects that's been given, which is what we did in this case. We had a schedule of defects that was given and we got another quote. Now, The other quote happened to be higher in this particular example, but nevertheless, you may get somebody else to then do the work at a cheaper cost, but then they've got to certify their work. Mm. The other company certifying their work and it becomes a, a very modeled situation as to, you know, who's taking responsibility, the time also it takes, you know, for different contractors to be able to be, um, brought on site and, and do all the work. Because a lot of these fire companies I've learned, Amanda, actually subcontract out. So you may think that you're dealing with fire company X, but they've got subcontractors of different mm. specialties that do other things that they don't have the expertise to do. So again, you're relying on, you know, third parties. And, um, and as you said, most of the time <laughs> they will submit it, Amanda, and then, you know, and I've, this happens all the time, I think we've spoken again about this, the AFA says is submitted but the work hasn't been done, but mm. they will issue it on the condition that the um, quote is accepted. So <laughs> that also yeah. happens quite a lot. Hold you to ransom. And yeah, exactly. So you're being held to ransom. And also with fire, I still think it's a very important area where it's still, I believe, highly unregulated yes. compared to other professionals. Um, it's basically people's lives. The complexity 
of what you're dealing with, especially with, you know, older buildings or even buildings built within the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, you know, have many problems with fire safety compliance. And what we find as strata managers is that we're told, you know, different things by different contractors and we have fire safety engineers who, again, you know, are quite costly to try and give us advice on, you know, fire safety measures and, and other methods of compliance rather than trying to meet a standard that perhaps in an old building or a, you know, very old or relatively old building can't be met. Mm. Well, I think the lesson for strata managers is certainly to be across these issues, to make sure that you understand that they are challenges that you will be facing, to make sure that you're giving yourselves and your buildings enough time so you're aware when these fire safety statements are due and some months out you are doing your best to find a competent fire safety professional. And as we discussed with Rob on episode 178, we're hopeful that that's going to become a little bit easier to find the right person from the beginning of the year when we will have a register of properly experienced, qualified, accredited people. And we shall see whether that changes this discussion. I hope it does. Yeah, I hope so too, Amanda, because as I said, it's been highly unregulated for a long time and the amount of money that buildings have had to spend to, you know, meet the day before they get fined by not submitting their AFSS on time is one of the areas that has to be regulated, I think, you know, sooner rather than later. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that challenge, Rena. I'm going to jump into my challenge for this week, and I have a feeling this may be a challenge for a few others. It relates to the consolidation of bylaws, and in particular, registering the consolidated bundle, which, as we know, in New South Wales, since our new legislation started, each time we change the bylaws, we add a bylaw, we repeal one, we amend, and we're going to land registry services to register that change. We have to register the change in the form of a single bundle of bylaws so that on the common property title, there's only ever one document that includes all of the current bylaws for the scheme. In my view, it makes a lot of sense, makes it easier for people who are looking at the title to understand what the bylaws are. However, what happens if that consolidation is wrong? What happens if the administrative task of putting the consolidation together has not been done correctly and a bylaw that should have been included in the consolidation is not there, even though it was never repealed by special resolution at a general meeting? And then the consolidation is lodged. Those are the bylaws. The legislation tells us that the register reflects the legal status of the bylaws for the building and they are what we rely on. Now, I have come across this problem about three times in the last 12 months, buildings coming to me saying, oops, we've made a mistake, the wrong bundle has been registered, it is not correct, what do we do? And my communications with land registry services so far have been to this effect, you must go back to the meeting and re-resolve, specially resolve the bylaw if you want it back in the consolidation or specially resolve whatever the amendment is that you want. Now, you can see how that would cause a problem if somebody, for example, lost their exclusive use bylaw because, Mm. oops, it was left off the consolidated bundle and some owners didn't want that exclusive use bylaw to go back onto the title and be part of the bundle, they would just vote against it at the meeting that was convened for the purpose of correcting the register. If you can't get that special resolution through, what do you do? Have you come across this problem, Rena? 
Yeah, I have actually, man. Not um, on a personal level, but um, actually one of my colleagues uh, rang me to tell me that that happened in his building. And in this particular case, I think where the error has occurred, I'm not really sure if this is a common thing. Amanda, you might have more information about this. But it stems from strata companies at the time when the legislation was brought in where they wanted to make some money by the strata managers companies themselves actually undertaking the consolidation. So Mm. in effect, really, it's just a a typing exercise. I shouldn't make it sound so simple because it's not because so many things can be omitted and especially if there's many, many bylaws where it's so easy for someone to make a mistake. But I think where managers try and go into this area of trying to do it themselves, I think they're leaving themselves at at a high, high risk. So Mm. You know, the remuneration of, at the time, especially I think of larger companies, seeing it as a way of, okay, you know, we we can get a a staff member, sit down, you know, type up and consolidate the bylaws, I think is an area where this can happen because normally we always use a lawyer to to do that, one, for the purpose of the fact that we're transferring the risk away Mm. from us because obviously a lawyer is, you know, has PI and everything like (laughs) like we do also, but at least it's not our own. But in the second instance, um, what I think, Amanda, also is that when we receive the bylaws back from the lawyer, we actually just have a a cursory look. So Mm. we make sure that all the bylaws are still there, you know, and every every single clause has been added, especially the new ones or the order is still maintained. And I think when you have the same company basically consolidating and then the manager not having that sort of oversight – I think that's where you have the problem. You don't have the separation of duty, so to speak, like you mm. would say in an audit process um, where the person that's doing the work is not the person that's paying the invoice, for example. And I think that's where I think companies are falling down, especially where they're trying to do it themselves mm. and then not, you know, you can't sometimes see your own work. You need someone else with a fresh pair of eyes yes. perhaps to look at it. And um, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. I mean, I think that you will find in time that no one's going to know that these things have happened until there's a reason to. And that's how we've discovered this in this particular instance where my colleague was telling me the only reason he knew is because something had happened and they had to refer back to that bylaw mm. in their consolidated set and it wasn't there. Indeed. So had they not had the need to refer that bylaw in this instance, they wouldn't have had to actually, they wouldn't have known that it was actually omitted from the consolidated set of bylaws. Mm. Yeah, I do agree with you. It is a more complex task than it looks Mm. and I think it's very easy to slip into that trap of saying it's just a typing exercise and I'm just copy-pasting or whatever it is. We do the consolidations within my office and we do it as a, a tracing exercise. We look at all the past dealings, we make sure we can track the repeals, the amendments through the dealings and then put together the correct bundle. And I love that concept, Rena, of having a double check process, Mm. sending it off to the strata manager. The lawyer has looked at it. The strata manager has looked at it. The committee Mm. has looked at it. I think that is just so important and you're right, an excellent way to pick up any errors. And certainly having a professional third party do the job for you. You know, you mentioned PI insurance. Well, indeed, you've got someone to blame. I always say you hire a lawyer, you've got someone to blame. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't want to be the one who has to oh, explain man, to Oh, I like to client. say someone to sue. Someone to sue. <laughs> there you go. Great. Thanks. <laughs> I was being friendly. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you do not want to be the strata manager that has to explain to your committee, oops, sorry, we lost Lot 3's exclusive use bylaw because my assistant didn't type up 
the document correctly. Mm. As far as I'm aware, there is no other process within LRS to correct these mistakes. I have communicated with them a couple of times and the answer that I keep getting is no, we need a meeting, we need a special resolution. There's no slip rule as there would be in a court where there's some kind of mistake in a judgment or an order. There is no avenue for that. I think there should be and we may see that down the track. I am sure we are not the only ones who are experiencing and our clients are not the only ones experiencing these frustrations. Yeah, and I think sometimes, Amanda, when some bylaws are omitted, it's easier then to add another bylaw or amend something and then reconsolidate and correct the error. Mm. But I think, for example, such as exclusive use, Mm. I mean, that would normally impact on the value of a lot. Indeed, yeah. So I think that in your example, the consequences of such an omission are far more reaching in terms of um, financial impact than just, um, you know, a few words missing or a bylaw about, you know, some behavioural aspect of the management of the strata scheme. Mm, For sure. Yeah. Would love to hear from you if you've experienced this problem, a strata manager, committee member, do feel free to drop us a line. Uh, We do have some avenues to communicate with our policymakers and the more stories that we can gather when we have these challenges, the more powerful those approaches can be. So don't hesitate to drop me an email. You know where to find me. Let's shift gears and move into your win for this week, Rena. Well, this is a very interesting case, Amanda, because this is a a dispute with a contractor that we had. So initially um, the contractor came to us, you know, with their own contract and he wanted 50% deposit. And the first thing I said was, no, like the Home Building Act, this is a residential building and the Home Building Act stipulates that it's only 10%. So he issued the invoice for 10%. And I recall our accounts person telling me even the ABN had one digit missing. Anyway, so we paid the 10% and, of course, the work doesn't commence on time. There's delays. And all of the reasons that we didn't accept another quote was because he said he could do it straight away and the other company said they, had, they couldn't do it straight away. So we, in a sense, the committee went to this contractor on the basis that he was able to complete the work in a much more timely manner than another contractor that I had already recommended whom I had used previously and in my building had been very happy with the standard of their work. Anyway, so not even two weeks after the work is completed, Amanda, he's been chasing the invoices every day or every second day and a lot of companies now use software that generates automatic reminders for invoices. So it's actually not coming from an individual person. It's a system just generating a reminder. And at that time, because the committee didn't have much confidence in the contractor because of the delays and other things that had happened and the fact that he had asked for 50% deposit, which of course was a red flag to them that he didn't know that it could only be 10%, they actually asked the company that I had initially recommended that it couldn't do the work in a timely manner to come and inspect the work that this contractor had done Mm -hmm. before they paid him. And we're talking about quite a bit of money. So... They finally got the report from the second contractor and he said the work had been done properly. So I paid the invoice basically I think two weeks after he said it was due and the day before he had already lodged a claim at NCAT Mm. and I just want to raise this with um, our listeners. It's actually with NCAT and it's the Consumer and Commercial Division. Mm -hmm. And the other issue that this person didn't understand was the law of agency, which I tried to explain to him. So basically it was our company on behalf of the strata plan. And when I said to him at the time when he was asking for his money on a you know daily basis, I said, unfortunately, I don't have the authority to release the funds, which I didn't. 
And then he said to me, well, that's your problem. <laughs> saying, no, it's actually your problem. So when he went to NCAT, he obviously put our company and basically saying, and the reason that he said the dispute details are, despite repeated attempts to be paid for completed works, the Strata company has refused to release the funds. So he saw it as if we mm. were refusing to pay him mm. as opposed to the entity that had engaged him not allowing us as agent to release the funds. Yep. So I think the problem is that a lot of companies, I think when we take over many buildings, the invoice is always sent to the strata company, not the strata scheme or the entity that's actually being built. Mm. This is something that we always have to correct because the law of agency is that we are acting on behalf of the strata scheme or the, the BMC or the community association so that when you are being sued, in this case, as we were, he still didn't get it right. Mm. And then he had the, the side of the building work in his um, application was actually his address rather than oh. the address of the, um, of the actual um, building. So so we kept on saying, Tim, you've been paid, you know, will you withdraw it? And he just ignored me and sent me this quite rude email, which, you know, was mm. ignored. And so I went to the committee and I said, well, I'll still have to turn up tomorrow because unfortunately if he doesn't withdraw it, you know, it's still on the list mm. and you have to turn up. So the afternoon before the next morning's hearing, he actually had withdrawn it and mm. he said to the building manager, you know, you, you guys are such nice people. You're really nice. It's that strata manager that didn't release yeah. the money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your fault. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you guys threw me under the bus. <laughs> you didn't tell it was us that told him not, not to release the money. <laughs> yeah. I would uh, have liked to see him try to explain to the tribunal what his legal relationship was with you, strata yeah. Exactly. And what legal cause of action he had against you, Strata Central, because yeah. you do not have a contract with him. And, exactly. Uh, from what I've just Oh, but said, Amanda, he said to me, I signed the contract. In his oh, because mind, you signed I signed it. it. That's what he said. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> See, they come up with all sorts of things. And we have to be prepared for that. And as Strata managers, be prepared for when this happens. And I know, Rena, probably in your career, it's been a few times now that yeah. you've had to have that same conversation. And it's important to have the right words to be able to explain, to educate others about the law of agency. I am an agent. I act on instructions only. And I have no re legal relationship with you, the contractor. So you can yeah, go for exactly. your life, but <laughs> good luck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Good one to share. I am sharing a case this week in the category of my win. Not my case, but certainly I think a case that takes us one more step towards understanding what the limits of our powers are when it comes to regulating smoking inside our strata buildings. So a good case to have a look at It is called GISKS, G-I-S-K-S, and the owners of strata plan number 6743. As always, I will put a link to the case in the show notes. It was an application brought by a lot owner against both an owner's corporation and another lot owner in relation to smoke drift that was occurring from one lot to another. And the lot owner suffering said, this is a nuisance under section 153 of our act. And ultimately the tribunal agreed and said, yes, this type of smoke drift does constitute a nuisance and orders were made for the occupant of the other lot to limit uh, their smoking. It wasn't to stop completely. They were ordered not to smoke on the balcony or in the bedrooms because that was a bit too close to the other lot and to close all exterior doors 
bedroom windows and the bathroom window when smoking inside the lot. Now, Orders were also sought against the owners' corporation. However, when you read the decision, the member found that there was no bylaw dealing with smoking. And as a result, the member thought the owners' corporation didn't actually have an obligation to do anything about the smoking. It was more a matter between the two lot owners. And specifically, the member said that the owners' corporation did not have a duty to make its own application under Section 153 of the Act in relation to this nuisance. So that's interesting. Interesting for owners corporations who Mm. are in a situation where lot owners might be saying, hey, you have to act, uh, but the lot owner themselves has the right to approach the tribunal. So no orders made against the owners corporation in that case, but definitely a clear recognition on the part of our tribunal that smoking constitutes a nuisance under that section of the Act. And there were some earlier tribunal cases cited as well where similar orders had been made about smoking being a nuisance. So we're developing a bit of a body of case law here, Rena, uh, which I think is helpful. Yeah, I think so too, Amanda. It's funny, I actually had last week a agent write to me because the tenant had written to the agent saying that there was smoking, you know, from the person on the ground floor apartments. Um, she said, you need to, can you do something about this? And I said, yeah, but which ground floor apartment? Like you need to be a bit more specific because it's very hard to take any action or even consider any action if you don't know who the actual lot that is offending. Anyway, so then then she wrote back to the tenant, the tenant wrote back, oh, it's, you know, the woman in unit, whatever, which I know quite well. And I know she doesn't smoke. But anyway, I thought, okay, so I forwarded it to her and she said, you know, I don't smoke, which is what I knew. Anyway, and then the tenant said, oh, if this continues, I'm going to terminate my lease. So I think she was using that as a, a way, and I'm not sure, Amanda, this has been tested, but, yeah, the smoke drift thing was basically becoming an issue in terms of um, leases and whether or not a tenant is able to enforce their rights. Yeah, um, but even though there is no bylaw, they don't have a no smoking bylaw in this particular building either, man. So I wonder how that would work. Mm. We definitely do have a case where a tenant has sued a landlord for failure mm. to provide a safe, healthy environment yeah. because of a neighbour that was smoking and the smoke yeah. drift was entering. And this was an apartment building, and yeah. the landlord failed to do anything. And and that's a case where the tribunal said there were a few things the landlord could have done, including approaching the owners' corporation and Mm. requesting the intervention of the owners' corporation either on the grounds of nuisance or by developing a bylaw. So, indeed, that tenant may well have a claim against their landlord. Well, through the agent who's acting on behalf of the landlord, they have come to us, Amanda, but, I mean, the information that we've been given is is incorrect. So, you know, we'd love to help them, um, but we need to know exactly. And it's very easy not to know with smoke drift. I mean, you may think it's the apartment way below you, but it could be one on the side that's drifting. I mean, who knows? So sometimes um, smoke drift is not as apparent as people might think it is. Mm, Yeah. Well, certainly in this GISC's case, the tribunal member was quite clear that the Strata Committee was not responsible for enforcing the nuisance provisions of the legislation, Section 153. However, the member did say that having read the reasons in the decision, the owners' corporation would be well-placed to change its views about smoke drift and penetration because this owners' corporation had a view that it wasn't that bad and it wasn't really causing a problem and they had said that to the lot owner. But the member said, you know, having read this decision, the owners' corporation should have a look at that, change its views about smoke drift being a hazard or a nuisance. Didn't go that further step to say, 
and introduce a bylaw to deal with mm. it. But I think that's what the member was hinting at there, being able to regulate this issue for the benefit of the building and the, the occupants as a whole. I think that's going to become more often the conservative approach for buildings where this is raised as a problem by occupants. Yeah, I agree with you, Amanda, totally, because people may also have asthma or other respiratory conditions. So what, you know, someone like me who doesn't have that issue may think um, that amount of smoke is not so bad, but someone who does have asthma or any other respiratory condition yep. will find a very smaller, uh, a lower threshold of acceptability of smoke drift. So. Yep, absolutely. And it's a principle of our law that we take people as we find them. So, mm. yes, those kinds of conditions do need to be taken into account. So a link to that one in the show notes. It's uh, relatively short. Go and have a little look at that case. Wow, we've had a jam-packed episode today, haven't mm. we, Rena? It's like we that sure some have, weeks. Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to chatting to you again soon. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?